Jeffrey Samuel's article entitled Unbalanced Flows in the Subtle Body, Tibetan Understandings of Psychiatric Illness and How to Deal with It, is a discussion of how Tibetan medical and Buddhist ideas of lung, which is the word we normally translate as wind or breath, um, could be related to Western ideas of the emotions and the autonomic nervous system and its functions. Each of those systems is presented briefly in this article, and then uh, Samuel explores similarities and differences between the two systems. He begins with a reference to an article by Susanna Dean that discusses the domain of psychiatric illness in biomedicine or Western medicine and how Tibetan medicine understands psychiatric, what we call psychiatric illnesses in terms of disorders of this internal process known as lung, which is the word we translate as wind. So lung in a Tibetan transliteration is spelled R-L-U-N-G, but the R is silent, so we'll call that lung. So Samuel, his article will talk about the different meanings of the term lung and its origins in Tibetan, and then he'll talk about lung in the tantric context, tantric Buddhist context, and different relationships between tantric subtle anatomy and tantric yoga and Western ideas of the autonomic nervous system. <clears throat> then he'll talk about psychiatric illnesses as they might be understood as imbalances in those processes of the subtle body and how they're understood as disorders of the autonomic nervous system by some theorists today. So his article begins by discussing the meaning of the different meanings of the term lung, which is one of the three, um, what are sometimes called humors in Tibetan medical theory, but Samuel calls them pathogenic processes. So the three uh, humors or pathogenic processes are <clears throat> um, parallel to Sanskrit terms found in Ayurvedic medicine. And in Tibetan, they're uh, referred to as lung or wind, and then bile and phlegm as the other uh, uh, of the three. Samuel clarifies that these um, pathogenic processes, although they're referred to as humors, he doesn't like this term, um, as nor does Susanna Dean, uh, because they're not factors that should be kept in balance with each other's with each other, as the humors of medical traditions in pre-modern Europe are, but rather they should be understood as processes in the body-mind system, which could become excessive and so damaging to the body-mind as a whole. Although there are many um, historical and theoretical uh, connections between Tibetan medicine and Ayurvedic medicine, Samuel points out on page 772 of this article that in Tibetan medicine, there's a much stronger role for mind or consciousness or what we might call emotional states than there is in uh, Ayurveda and possibly even also within um, mainstream Western medicine. So, and it's in relation to lung, this concept of breath or wind, lung, that um, we see this uh, strong connection to the mind or consciousness. 
Samuel then points out that lung not only is an important term um, in Tibetan medicine for reasons that the article will discuss, but it's also an important key term in um, the vocabulary, the traditions of Tibetan Buddhist Tantra or Vajrayana or Indian Vajrayana also. In that context, lung corresponds to the term in Sanskrit prana, which is typically translated as breath, but refers also, in addition to this process of breathing or respiration, it refers also to a variety of subtle inner flows within the body, Samuel says. So lung in Tibetan <clears throat> is not the same thing as Ayurvedic wind or, or breath, and not quite the same thing either as tantric uh, concepts of prana, although it's related to both. And what he wants to point out um, in this article is that the additional component of lung in Tibetan is this connection to uh, the poisons, the three poisons of Buddhism, and in particular, the poison of attachment or desire. So this connection to emotional experience is what um, Jeffrey Samuel is emphasizing in this article. In order to make that point, he goes into several examples of different kinds of lung diseases that are described in Tibetan medical texts and also in some biographies of contemporary uh, Tibetan figures in order to show what kinds of um, what we would call now psychiatric diseases are referred to as lung disorders in Tibetan medical tradition. Samuel's article then moves on to how lung is understood in Tibetan Buddhist Tantra or Vajrayana traditions. So in uh, Vajrayana, in, tantric, in the Tantric context, there still are the five principal forms of lung that are located in specific uh, places in the body and that have certain functions in the body. But the understanding or the use of lung in uh, tantric practice is a bit different. Samuel points out that it's more concerned with transforming the flow of lung in the body, throughout the body, as a spiritual technique. And moreover, lung is, in that sense, closely associated with consciousness or the mind. In tantric traditions, lung flows through this uh, network of channels or uh, Sa in Tibetan or Nadi in, in Sanskrit that meet at a series of points along the spine or the central axis of the body, which are called wheels, or uh, which we know of in which we might be familiar with the term chakras. So these um, channels that spread throughout the body carry this uh, process or breath respiration substance. Uh, throughout the body and meet at these kind of wheels or chakras that are situated along the spinal column. In tantric traditions, the practitioner works to manipulate the flow of lung throughout the body through these channels 
in order to attain an enlightened state or to attain Buddhahood. So how the lung and the mind that's associated with the lung travels throughout those channels is one of the central um, targets of tantric practice, tantric practitioners as they work to achieve uh, Buddhahood. So the next section of the article then um, discusses the autonomic nervous system and the concept of predictive processing. In Samuel's effort to understand whether some of these Tibetan medical and tantric presentations of lung that are associated with thought and emotion and well, as well as with the mind and the control of the mind might be related to um, Western understandings of, of the autonomic nervous system and um, other theories of consciousness and the mind. So he provides, uh, starting on page 783, a brief um, history of Western ideas about the autonomic nervous system and the theor and theories of the emotions and the neuroscientific study of perception. He discusses the development of the idea of the sympathetic component and the parasympathetic, parasympathetic component of the autonomic nervous system with the sympathetic nervous system uh, associated with the fight or flight response and the parasympathetic uh, with the relaxation response. Jeffrey Samuel introduces the work of uh, Dr. Stephen Porges, uh, starting on page 783, who expands our understanding of the autonomic nervous system by suggesting that the sympathetic nervous system is mainly focused on mobilizing uh, the, a person for action or any organism for action, whereas the parasympathetic part of the nervous system deals with social interaction, social communication, or calming and self-soothing, which inhibits that fight or flight response um, in the case of situations where that response would not be appropriate. This then leads to a discussion of uh, the perception of perception and the interpretation of incoming data. So to know whether a response um, to one's environment is appropriate or not, we have to think about then how do we interpret the perceptions that we have or the, the sensory input that we have. So Jeffrey Samuel then brings up this concept of predictive processing, which argues, he says on page 784, that the neural system learns over time how to interpret sensory data more effectively and this way learns to make better predictions about how to live and operate in the world. So in other words, the neural system, our nervous system is trainable. We can learn to interpret sensory data in a better way that helps us make, that helps us make better interpretations or make better predictions about how we should live uh, productively in the world or effectively. And so to take that one step further then, it's not only about sensing or perceiving uh, stimuli or data that comes from our external environment, but it's also about what's called introception. So perceiving the inter interior of our bodies. So what's happening inside our bodies, the internal state of the body um, has to do with how we react to, uh, to the condition, the physiological condition of our ourselves, our bodies. This then brings him to link predictive processing to a philosophical tradition called an activism. And 
its ideas of the embodied mind. So that's discussed briefly on page 785, where Samuel says, this tradition of thought sees our conscious and or unconscious understanding of the world as constructed through our interactions with our environment, including our interactions with our own bodies, the inside of our bodies and the outside of our bodies. After a brief discussion of the concept of emotions then related to this uh, understanding of perception, Jeffrey Samuel says that Link comes back to discuss uh, Buddhism and Lung. And he says on page 786 that attaining Buddhahood therefore not only involves balancing these emotional flows in the so subtle body, but also attaining a high level aware of awareness of oneself in the external world. So practice in Buddhism and other breathing practices that we've studied in this course have to do with gaining a more sensitive awareness of what's happening in our bodies, paying attention to how our breath is moving in, out of, in and out of our bodies, and then how our emotions might be tied to that, and how our bodies feel generally, as well as from the inside, as well as thinking about how our bodies are um, interacting with the outside world, with the ground under our feet, or the chairs that we're sitting in, or with the wind blowing on our skin, and so forth. So the practice of Tantra, Buddhist practice, involves thinking about the breath in the context of both the perception and reinterpretation, training oneself to perceive the internal workings of the body, as well as to be aware more sensitively of the environment that we sit in. So this leads Jeffrey Samuel then to talk about some research that links explicitly connects uh, ta these tantric practices, Buddhist practices of observing the and and, and reinterpreting reinterpreting the uh, internal and external sensations of the body to link those to um, train a, a view of training the autonomic nervous system based on an under a real understanding of the neurophysiology of the autonomic nervous system. So this is not a new idea. It's something that Jeffrey Samuel himself has written about um, in a number of other sources besides this article, and in which he's talked about how um, gaining control over aspects of the autonomic nervous system uh, which that also involves gaining control over, over aspects of the endocrine system, which itself in um, our understanding, our Western understanding of the body, is about how uh, things flow, how substances, uh, hormones, and so forth flow throughout the body. So it's not so difficult to see the connections between these kinds of tantric practices of manipulating the flow of wind or lung throughout the body and um, our understanding of the um, endocrine system as also involving the flow of substances throughout, uh, throughout the body. He goes then a step further on page 788 to um, find some parallels between 
the two aspects of the autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic and parasympathetic aspects, and the two outer channels of the subtle body in Tantric Buddhism. He expands then on page 788 um, on this idea that Tantric um, understandings or Tibetan understandings of lung or emotion as something that's fluid or sort of almost fluid that moves around the body is actually a bit similar to how emotions are thought about in Western cultures, which are seen as located within the body, and that it maps um, well into the understanding of emotions as being linked to the actual flows in the endocrine system that are associated with, for example, the rise of cortisol or adrenaline as something that produces or affects our emotional experience. He points out some important differences also, though. So on page 789, for example, he says, one important difference is that the Western model operates in terms of explicitly physiological variables. It may be assumed, he says, or supposed that consciousness is associated with the electrical functioning of the autonomic nervous system and the hormonal activity of the endocrine system. But the Western explanatory model is generally used in a way that sidesteps the existence of consciousness. So the distinction between this model, uh, Western model that's explicitly physiological and a Tibetan model is that the consciousness uh, is clearly associated with lung and the flow of lung throughout the body. Another point of difference he points out is that in the Tibetan model, there's the role of karma as a, a causal force that um, moves the flow of substances throughout the body. And um, in Western science, it's always hard for people to kind of reconcile this idea of karma as something that moves from life to life or has to do with rebirth or reincarnation. Finally, Samuel makes the important point on page 790 toward the end of his article that the Tibetan model of psychiatric disorders is different from the Western model in that its goal is not simply the curing of the disorder so the patient can return to normal life, but an active state of health that implies positive social engagement with the welfare of others. So in other words, in the Tibetan Buddhist model, the point is to become a better person. And if the disease is cured, this is kind of a side effect. Personally, I quite like this idea that to cure one of psychological or psych psychiatric disorders involves, um, you know, increasing one's well-being in a whole life sense. So it's it, it involves moving a person into this what Jeffrey Samuel calls an active state of health, not just an absence of disease, but an active state of health that involves necessarily a kind of positive engagement with society and with other people and a kind of positive impulse toward the welfare of other beings as well.